Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm continuing last week's discussion with Robin Hansen, professor of economics at George Mason University and author of the Overcoming Bias blog. His books include The Age of M and The Elephant in the Brain. Check out the previous episode to hear Robin's thoughts on futurism, economic growth over the very long run, and more. In this episode, Robin and I talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Earlier this year, the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing on what Washington now calls unexplained aerial phenomena. While the hearing didn't unveil high-def close-up footage of little green men or flying saucers, it did signal that Washington is taking UAPs more seriously. But what if we really are being visited by extraterrestrials? What would contact with advanced alien civilization mean for humanity? It's exactly the kind of out-there question Robin thinks about seriously. Robin... In the past few years, there have been a lot of interesting developments on the UFO or now UAP front. The government seems to be taking these sightings far more seriously. Navy pilots are testifying. What's your take on all this? So there's two very different discussions and topics here. One topic is there's these weird sightings. What's with that? Right. And could those be aliens? Right. Another more standard conservative topic is just here's this vast empty universe. Are there aliens out there? If so, where? So that second topic is where I've recently done some work and where I feel most authoritative, though I'm happy to also talk about the other subject as well. But I think we should talk first about the more conservative subject. Well, the more conservative subject, I think, is, um, and I, I probably have this maybe 50% correct, is once civilizations progress far enough, they expand. Right. And when they expand, they change things. Right. And... If there were a lot of these civilizations out there, we should be able to, at this point, detect the changes they've made. So either we've come so early that there's aren't there aren't a lot of these kinds of civilizations out there. It's, let me let me stop right. there, and then you no, can no. begin to correct. So me. the key question is, you know, looks like we soon could yeah. go out expanding, and we don't see limits to how far we could go. We right. could fill the universe, and yet. We look out, and it's an empty universe. Right. And so there seems to be a conflict. Where's the giant right. Dyson spheres? Right. So one explanation is, okay, we are so, so rare that in the entire observable universe, we're the only ones, and therefore that's why there's nobody else out there. And that's not a crazy position, except for the fact that we're early. So uh, the, the typical, the median star will last 5 trillion years. We're here on our star after only 5 billion years, a factor of 1,000. And our standard best theory of when advanced life like us should appear, if the universe would stay empty and wait for it, would be near the end of a long-lived planet. That's when it would be most likely to appear. And so uh, there's this power of the number of hard steps, which we can go into, right. but basically the, t the chance of appearing should go as the power of this time. So if there's, say, six hard steps, which is a middle estimate, then the chance of appearing a thousand times later would go as the thousand to the power of six, which would be 10 to the 18. So we are just crazy early with respect to that analysis. And so 
there's a key assumption of that analysis, which is the universe would sit and wait empty until we showed up. So the simplest way to resolve this is to deny that assumption, is to say the universe is not sitting and waiting empty. In fact, it's filling up right now, and in a billion years or two, it'll be all full. And we had to show up before that deadline. And then right. you might say, right. but if the universe is filling up right now, if right now the universe is half full of aliens, right. why don't we see any? We should we should be <laughs> detecting signals, seeing right. things. We have this brand so, new right. this brand new telescope out there sitting a million right. miles away. And if we were sitting at a random place in the universe, that would be true. But we are the subject of a selection effect. Here's the key story. We have to be at a place where the aliens haven't gotten to yet. Because otherwise, you know, they would be here instead of us. Right. That's the key problem. So if aliens expand at almost the speed of light, then you won't see them until they're almost here. And uh, that means if you look backwards in our light cone, from our point all the way backwards, almost all that light cone is excluded. Aliens couldn't be there because, again, if they had arisen there, they would be here now instead of us. The only places aliens could appear (laughs) that we could see now would have to be just at the edge of that cone. And therefore, the key explanation is Aliens are out there, but everywhere where the aliens are not, can't see them because the aliens are moving so fast that they don't see them until they're almost there. And so the day on the clock is the thing telling you aliens are out there right now. That that might seem counterintuitive. How's the clock supposed to tell me about (laughs) aliens? Shouldn't I see like pictures of weird guys with antenna? (laughs) Something, right? And so I'm saying, no, it's the clock. The clock is telling you that they're out there because the clock is saying you, you're crazy early. And the, the best explanation for why you're crazy early is... They're out there right now. But if we, you know, take a simple model of, you know, they're arising in random places and then uh, at random times, and we fit it to three key datums we know, we can actually get estimates for this basic model of aliens out there. And it has the following key parameter estimates. They're expanding at, say, half the speed of light or faster. They appear roughly once per million galaxies, so pretty rare. And if we expanded out soon and meet them, we'd meet them in a billion years or so. So now the observable universe has a trillion galaxies in it. So once per million galaxy means there's a lot of them that will appear in our observable universe, but it's not like a few stars over. (laughs) This is really rare, once per million galaxies. And we're not going to meet them soon, again, in a billion years. So there's a long time to wait here. Based, Based on this answer. I don't think your answer to my first question is um, we, we are we are making contact with alien intelligence. So this simple model predicts strongly that there's just no way that right. UFOs are aliens. Right. right. And if this were the only possible model, that would be my answer. But, you know, I have to pause and ask, okay, can I change the model to make it more plausible? So I tried to do this exercise. I tried to say, how could I most plausibly make a set of assumptions that would have as their implication UFOs this are aliens you, and they're really here. Is this a different model or just you changing something change key some in that I'm going to change some things model. in this model, but they'll have to change several things. Right. And the question is, I'm going to make some assumptions so that I get the implication that some UFOs are aliens and they're doing the weird things we see. And the key question is going to be, how many assumptions do I have to make and how unlikely they are? So this is the argument about the prior on this theory. So think of a murder trial. In a murder trial, somebody says A killed B. And you know that the prior probability of that is like one in a million, right? One in a thousand people are killed in murder, and they each know a thousand people. So 
the idea that any one of those people right. killed them would be one in a million, right? So you you might say, let's just dismiss this murder trial because the prior is so low. But we don't do that. Why? Because it's actually possible in a typical murder trial to get concrete physical evidence that overcomes a one in a million prior. So the analogy for UFOs would be people say they see weird stuff. Right. They say you should maybe think that's aliens. And the first question you have to ask is, how a priori unlikely is that? If it was, you know, one in 10 to the 20 unlikely, you'd say, there's nothing you could tell me <laughs> that right. would make me believe this. I'm just not going to look, right? Because it's just so crazy. There are a lot of pretty <laughs> crazy explanations that aren't as crazy as that. Exactly. But I, my guess is the prior is roughly one in a thousand. And with a one in a thousand prior, you got to look at the evidence, right? You don't just draw the conclusion of one in a thousand because that's still low, but you got to be willing to look at the evidence if it's one in a thousand. So that's where I'd say I, we are. So then the question is, well, how do I get one in a thousand, right? So I'm going to try to generate a scenario that is as plausible as possible and consistent with the key datums we have about UFOs. So here are the key datums, right? One is the universe looks empty, right? right? Two is they're here now. Right. Three is, well, they, I mean, they didn't kill us. We're still alive, right? right? And, and four is they, they didn't do the two obvious things they could do. They, they could have come right out and been really obvious right. and just slapped us on the face and said, here we are. Yeah. And that would have been easy. Or they could have been completely invisible. And they didn't do either of those. What they do is hang out at the edge of visibility. And so we like, what's with that? Why, why do that weird intermediate thing? So that's, these are the things we have to come We have to come up with a hypothesis that explains these right. things. Because those are the things that are weird here. Okay, so the first thing I, I need to do is correlate aliens and us in space-time. Because if it was once per randomly per million galaxies, that doesn't work. So the way to do that is panspermia. Panspermia siblings, in fact. That is, Earth life didn't start on Earth. It started somewhere else. And that somewhere else seeded our stellar nursery. So our star was born with a thousand other stars all in one place at the same time with lots of rocks flying back and forth for 30 million years. So if life was seeded that stellar nursery, it would have seeded not just our Earth, but seeded life on many of those other thousand stars. And then they would have drifted apart over the last four billion years. And now they're in a ring around the galaxy. And the scenario would be one of those other planets developed advanced life before us. And so the way we get is we assume panspermia happened. Right. We assume there's a sibling and that one of them came to our level before us. If that happened, you know, the, the average time duration would be maybe 100 million years, right? It, it wouldn't have happened in the last thousand years or even million years. It would be a long time. So given this, we have to say, okay, they reached our level of advancement 100 million years ago, yeah. say. And they're in the same galaxy as us. They're not too far away. And we know that they could find us. So they, we can all find the rest of their stellar siblings by just the specter. We all were in the same gas with the same mixture of chemicals. So we just find the same mixture of chemicals we found the siblings. So they could look out and find our siblings, right? Now, we have this next piece of data. The universe is empty. The galaxy is empty. If, they've been around for 100 million years. If they wanted to take over the galaxy, they could have. Right? Easy. Yeah in a hundred million years, but they didn't. So to explain that, I think we have to postulate that they have some rule against expansion. So they decided that they did not want to lose their community and central governance and allow their descendants to change and right. be strange and compete with them. They chose to keep their civilization local and therefore to ban or prohibit effectively any colonists from leaving. And we have to assume not only that was their plan, they succeeded for a hundred million years. Like 
it's really hard. None of their generation <laughs> ships, they nope. didn't allow them to come floating uh, no, no. through our solar system. They did systems. not allow any substantial colonization right. away from their home world for 100 million years. So that's, that's quite a capability, right? They may have stagnated in many ways, but they have maintained this border and this thing. Now, then they realize that they have siblings. They look out and they can see them. And now they have to realize we are at risk of breaking the rules. Like, if they just let us evolve without any constraints, then we might well expand out. And then the rule they maintain for 100 million years, trying to maintain their precious coherence, it would be for not, because we would violate it all, right? We would become the competitors they, they didn't want. Right. So that creates an obvious motive for them to be here, right? A motive to allow an exception, right? So again, they haven't allowed pretty much any expansion, but they're going to travel thousands of light years from there to here, to allow an expedition here, which risks the rule. Like if this expedition goes rogue, the whole game's over, right? right? So we're important enough. They're going to allow this expedition here to um, come here to try to convince us not to break the rule, but that not just to kill us because they could have just killed us, right? right? So clearly they feel enough of an affiliation or a sibling connection of some sort that they didn't just kill us. They want us to follow their rule, and that's why they're here. Right. Okay, so that all makes sense, but then we still have the last part to explain. Okay, but how exactly do they expect to convince us, and how does hanging out at the edge of our visibility right. do that? Right. So you have to realize, whoever from home sent out this expedition, they didn't trust this expedition very much. They had to keep them pretty constrained. So they had to prove some strategy early on that they thought would be pretty robust, that could plausibly work, that isn't going to allow these, these travelers to have much freedom to like go break their rules, right? So very simple, clean strategy. So what's that strategy? The idea is pretty much all social animals we know have a status hierarchy. The way we humans domesticate other animals is what we usually do is swap in and sit at the top of their status hierarchy. We are the top dog, the top horse, whatever it is. That's how we do it. And so that's a very robust way that animals have domesticated other animals. <laughs> and so that's their plan. They're going to be at the top of a status hierarchy. So how do they do that? They just show up and be the most impressive. They just, you know, fly around and say, right, right, look, you, at, look at me, right, I'm you better. Don't, you, don't, you don't need to land on the National Mall. You, no. just, you just need to go uh, 20 times faster than our exactly. fastest jet. I mean, that, right. that says something right there, that if right. we wanted to. We're, once we're convinced they exist, we're right. damn impressed, right? right? And so in order to be at the top of our status hierarchy, they need to be impressive, but they also need to be here and relatively peaceful, right? If, if they were doing it from light years away, then we'd be scared and threatened. Right. They need to be here at the top of our status hierarchy being very impressive. Now, it would be very impressive, of course, if they landed on the White House lawn and started talking to us too, but that's going to risk us not liking something. So as you know, you know, we humans have often disliked other humans for pretty minor things just because they don't eat the kind of foods we do or marry the way we do or things like that. So they land on the White House lawn. Someone is like, we need, we need to plan an invasion. Well, you know? I mean, the, the risk is that... They do some, if they told, if they right. showed up and they told a lot about us, they gave yeah. us their whole history and videos yeah. of their home world and everything yeah. else. We're going to find something we hate. We might like nine things out of 10, right. but that one thing we hate, we're going to hate a lot. And unfortunately, humans are not very forgiving for that, right? Or means we're most creatures. So this is their, their, their fear scenario, right? If they showed too much, then game over. We're not going to defer to them as the top four star because they're just going to be these weird aliens, right? Yeah. So they need to be here but not show very much about us. So the main thing they need to show is how impressive they are and that they're peaceful and and their agenda. But we can figure out the agenda, right? We, we've just right now, we, we can see why they're here 
because the universe is empty, so they didn't fill it. They must have a rule against that. Yeah. That would be violating the rule. Ta-da. And so all they have to, and they can be patient. They don't, they're in no particular rush. We, they can wait for us to like figure out what we believe or not because they just have to hang around and be there. And so we decide we believe it and then everything else follows from that. As you're describing that, it reminded me of the television show, uh, The Young Pope. We have a, uh, a, a, a young pope and he starts off by not appearing because he thinks part of his power comes from an air mystique. of mystery and yeah. mystique. Right. So in a way you're saying these, that's what these aliens would be doing. Think of an ancient emperor, right? Yeah. The ancient emperor was pretty weird. I mean, typically an emperor like came from a whole different place and was a different ethnicity or something to the local people. So how does the emperor- Spoke German instead right? of English. So, right. How, how does a emperor in the ancient world get the local people to obey them, right? Well, they don't show them a lot of personal details, of course, but they just they have a really impressive palace and impressive parades right. and army, right? And then everybody goes, I guess they're, they're the top <laughs> dog, right? That, that worked. That's worked consistently. I like top dog history, better, right? than, better than Apex Predator, by the way. I, I wrote about this, and the scenario I came up with is kind of what you just described, that we, we know they're here, um, and we know they have advanced technology. And, but, that, but that's it. We don't meet them. I would like to think that we would find it like really aspirational, that we would think, wow, we are nowhere near the end. We haven't, we haven't figured it all out. We haven't solved all we need to know about physics or anything else. What do you think of that idea? And what do you think would be the impact of that kind of scenario where they didn't give us their gadgets? We just know they're there in advance. What does that do to us? I mean, all through history, Humans haven't quite dared to think that they could rule their fate, right? They had gods above them who, who were more in control. And it's only in the last few centuries where we've taken on ourselves this sense of we're in charge of ourselves and we get to decide our future. Right? But if real aliens show up and they really are much more powerful, then we have to revise that back to the older stance of, okay, there are gods. Yeah. <laughs> they have opinions and <laughs> I guess we should like pay attention, right? <laughs> but if these are gods who once were us, that's a different kind of god. And that wasn't the ancient God, right? And so that's a different kind of God that we can then aspire to say. We can say, these gods were once like us. We could become like them. And look, look how possible it is. Now, of course, we will be suspicious of whether we can trust them and whether we should admire them. And that's where not saying very much will help, right? right. They just show off and they're just really powerful. They just don't tell us much. And they say, we're going to let you guys work that out. You, you get the basics. Then I think we would, we would be inspired, but also deflated a bit that we aren't in charge of ourselves <laughs> that if they have an agenda and it's contradicting ours they're going to win we lose it's going to be pretty hard we've had this stagnation uh relative certainly to what our expectations were in the media post for decades I, I i would like to think i'm seeing some signs that maybe that's changing maybe our attitude is changing maybe we're we're ch we're, ch we're changing maybe maybe now we're into a more a pro progress, progress embracing phase uh, of our existence. If we just had a, a, a maybe 50 years of this after 50 years of that. So there's, there's two distinctions here that are importantly different. One is the distinction between caution and risk. Mm -hmm. and the other is between fear and hope. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it just seems that fear and hate are just much stronger motives for most humans than hope. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've had this caution due to fear. So I think the best hope for aggression or risk is also fear or hate. That is, if we can find a reason why, say, 
we don't want those Russians to win the war and therefore we're going to do more innovation right. or those people tell us we can't do and therefore you can, right? So like many people recently have entered the labor force and then been motivated by the stats. Those people don't think we're good enough and right. we're going to show we're right. good enough and what we can do, right? Well, if, you fr- if, you're fear- if you're frightened enough about climate change, then at right? some point you'll think like, well, we need, you know, all of the above and all the, if Absolutely. that's nuclear, that's, that's fine. If it's digging super deep If you could make earth, strong enough fear. Yeah. I, so I fear that's just actually showing that people aren't really that afraid yet. Mm-hmm. If they were more afraid, they would be willing to go more for nuclear, but uh, they're not actually very afraid. So uh, back in 2003, um, I was part of this media scandal at the event called about the policy analysis market. Basically, yeah. we had these prediction markets that were going to uh, make estimates about you know, Middle Eastern uh, geopolitical events. And people thought that was a terrible sort of thing to do. It didn't fit their ideals of how foreign policy estimates should be produced. And one of the things I concluded from that event was that they just weren't actually very scared of bad things happening in the Middle East, because if so, they would have, wouldn't have minded this if this was really right. going to help them you know, make those things go better. And... We actually saw that in the pandemic. I don't think we ever got so scared in the pandemic that we did what we did in World War II. So if you, as you may know, in the beginning of World War II, we were losing. Mm-hmm. We were losing badly. And we consistently were losing. And we got scared and we fired people and fired contractors and changed things until we stopped losing. And then we eventually won, right? We, we never fired anybody in the pandemic. Nobody lost their job. We never reorganized anything and like said, you guys are doing crap and we're gonna hand the job to this, these group. We were never scared enough to do that. And, and so that's part of why it didn't go so well is that, that you know, the, the one thing that went well is when we, <laughs> we said, let's break, let's set aside the usual rules and let you guys go for something. Right. We got scared of, we it was, we got scared of Sputnik and we, right. You know, ten, 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 years, ten years later, there's an American flag on the moon. Right. And that right. was an, an, a, quite an impressive spurt of initially driven by fear. Perhaps if we're scared enough of shortages or scared enough of, um, climate yeah. change, or scared enough uh, that the Chinese are going to come up with a super weapon right. and there's all our defenses, then that would be a, a catalyst for a more dynamic, innovative America, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry for this to be sound a negative <laughs> sign, but I think the most, the best you can hope for optimism is that some sort of negative emotion would drive for more openness and more risk-taking. Innovation is like a, it's a fantastic free lunch, it seems like, and we don't do Maybe as we don't seem to value it enough, I guess, maybe until we have to. Well, for each one of us, it risks these changes, and we'd rather play it safe. So, you know, if you might know about, say, development in the U.S., right? You know, we have far too little housing yeah. in the U.S., and the main reason we have far too little housing is we've empowered a lot of local individual critics to complain about various proposals. And they basically pick just all sorts of little tiny things that could go wrong, and they say, you have to fix this and fix that. And that's what takes years. And that's why we don't have enough housing and building is because we empower those sorts of very safety oriented, tiny, if any little thing's going wrong, then you got to deal with it sort of thinking. And that's, we have to be scared enough of something else because then we allow, if not, otherwise those fears dominate. Robin, uh, outstanding. I, I never fear having you on a podcast because they're always outstanding. Thanks a lot for coming back. It's been great to talk to you.